Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. And I'm Stefan Cohn in London. Every week, we celebrate the successes, failures, learning, and laughs that go hand-in-hand with baking for those we love. And right now is no exception. We've heard you, listeners, and we know you're counting on us to keep the baking conversation going strong, even in uncertain times. So that's what we intend to do. Today, we're kicking off an entire month of Japanese sweets. And since we can't cover an entire country in only four bake-alongs, we'll devote our mini-segments to some iconic Japanese desserts you may want to add to your baking bucket list. So grab yourself some coffee and get ready for some sweet talk. It is the first day of June. It's always really fun, and it tickles me so much when an episode comes out on the very first day of the month, and it's a brand new theme. I, I know. I why. I get a kick out of that. It's just fun. And this month, we are doing something a little different. We had such a great time devoting an entire month to one specific cuisine, and that was our Italian month back in February of 2020. You, oh. of course, remember our great panna cotta and our terrific tiramisu and pignolis and cannoli cake. I mean, was really, really wonderful. We learned a lot and really drilled down into one specific country. So we thought, let's do it again. And this time, really challenging ourselves and doing Japanese desserts. Yes, at least with Italian month, I had familiarity with the dishes. I've either had them in restaurants or I've had them from my mother-in-law who's an Italian and loves to bake, or I tried some of them on my own. I have to admit right up front, I have almost no familiarity with Japanese sweets. So I think this is going to be a really fun adventure for me, and I'm hoping for some of our listeners as well. And this also was a reader's suggestion to do more deep dives into specific cuisines. You know, we had such a great response when we asked for 20 for 20 suggestions. This was one that came in, and you and I were already kind of thinking about doing a few. So just wanted to also say that, you know, that was a great suggestion and one that we are also honoring this month. Yeah, I don't know, aside from like mochi, which I know we're going to talk about a little bit next week. Yeah. I don't I don't know very much at all. But when you started sending recipes and we started brainstorming, there's a huge wealth out there. We're going to learn a lot and eat a lot of delicious things this month. Learn a lot and eat a lot. I like it. <laughs> My kind of month. <laughs> Speaking of eating a lot, Stefan, last week I talked about that crispy, chewy oatmeal cookie that I had discovered. Mm, yeah. Then I turned right around and discovered another new cookie. Now, I'm not often on the lookout for a new chocolate chip cookie. I'm pretty happy with my favorite chocolate chip cookie. And I've loved some of those threads on our listeners group about what's your favorite chocolate chip cookie. Listeners who follow me on Facebook know that I always recommend one from All Recipe called the Best Big Fat Chewy Chocolate Chip Cookie. (laughs) The best title. I know. And one of the reasons I love that particular cookie is because it uses melted butter. So I don't have to worry about, oh my gosh, I got to pull butter out of the fridge and let it soften. I can just melt my butter and start baking. That's the same with my favorite, which is the Carolyn's chocolate chip cookie from Martha Stewart. Oh, yes. Something about that too. I think it really makes it like kind of nutty and toasty tasting too when you melt that butter. I love it. 
As satisfied as I am with my current front runner chocolate chip cookie, every once in a while another recipe will come along that intrigues me. Mm. And I wanted to mention this one. It comes from the Baking at Republic Masterful Techniques and Recipes. Oh. And that's by Chef Margarita Mansky. And okay. it looks like she is the co owner of a bakery in Los Angeles called Republic. Okay. And this recipe for her chocolate chip cookies, I believe I first saw it on the Food 52 baking group, and I saw some people talking about it and how much they liked it. And the reason I was so fascinated with it is that it's so different from my current favorite recipe. Mm. So instead of melting butter in the ingredients, you see she has 110 grams or half a cup of unsalted butter, pliable but still cold. Ooh, not quite room temp then. Yes. And so it does mean you still need to pull it out of the fridge ahead of time, but you're not waiting for the entire stick to soften. Right. The other thing that she does that I thought was so interesting is that she says when you put your butter and your sugar, she uses both granulated sugar and brown sugar, into your stand mixer, you cream the mixture on medium speed until just incorporated, but no Mm -hmm. longer. Mm Mm-hmm. And I feel like a lot of my recipes, you cream the butter and sugar until it's light and fluffy. So So true. Yeah, it was just so different. And I did this particular recipe also keeping our 20 for 20 in mind. Remember, I want to have more cookies in my freezer. So great. I did this particular recipe, which, again, I love that it makes a small batch. So it makes 12 cookies. I'll include a link to it in our show notes. And so I use my big uh, two-ounce ice cream scoop to make those nice big cookies, which I loved. And then I put them on prepared baking sheets. I put them in the freezer. I let them freeze. And then I vacuum sealed them. And I put four to a bag. So... Mm. That way I can just pull out a bag of cookies and bake them and have a nice nighttime treat and then not have to worry about, you know, eating 12 of them because I've only limited myself to four. I love it. You are hitting a resolution. You are having a lovely treat. You have also, I think, I mean, aside from the the cookies in the freezer, I mean, was just kind of like having or making more cookies. Was that part of that as well? That resolution because last week you were talking about the oatmeal. This week you have another chocolate chip. You're really on the you're really on the hunt for more cookies. I love it. You know, you would think that. I think a big part of my hunt for more cookies is one thing that we've been doing in my family that we just love. And it sort of is defeating my purpose of making smaller batches of cookies, is I'm making homemade ice cream sandwiches. <laughs> so oh my gosh. Oh heaven. There's I'm truly just... nothing better. Homemade cookie with homemade ice cream in the middle. Yeah, and I'm just discovering that it's so much fun to mix up the cookie flavors and the ice cream flavors. So I think that's why I've been on a bit of a cookie bender, so you'll have to forgive me for that. Mm, No forgiveness. Mm -mm. Nope. (laughs) No forgiveness that you are – it's like a guilty pleasure. I don't believe in those either. Like just go out and have a great time exploring your cookies and putting them in your freezer. It just makes me so happy to think of you just – pulling them out of your freezer and having your cookie. I smile every time I open my freezer and I just see them all stacked up in there. It looks great. Well, Andrea, our first Japanese bake-along this month is also a 20 for 20. Now that I think about it, we made a 20 for 20 to make more bread, and that's exactly what we are doing. This is the shokupan 
Japanese fluffy white bread. It comes from a blog called the Chopstick Chronicles and the blogger's name is Shihoko. Andrea, this is one of those kind of internet sensations, world famous bakes that has completely passed me by. (laughs) Well, me too. And thank goodness we have the listeners because... For some reason, even though Japanese milk bread has been on everyone's baking list and Instagram feed, I agree with you. I just – it didn't process into yeah. my brain. Yeah. And I think it was listener Michelle, maybe even a year ago, as much as a year ago, she had posted in our Facebook group with a recipe for the milk bread recipe from Kindred. And I had okay. looked at that particular one, and that particular milk bread recipe had a cup of heavy cream. Mm-hmm. And – I thought to myself when I sort of read through it, I was like, oh, this sort of looks like brioche to me. And I just kind of filed it away in my head as Japanese milk bread must be the same as brioche. Well, then earlier this year, listener Barbara had posted about the Tangzong method. And a couple of listeners had weighed in. Barb used the Tangzong method to make a triple chocolate sticky bun. And she said it was one of the best things she had ever tasted. And so now I did get interested. (laughs) And I want to talk a little bit about the Tangzong method, even though we're not using it in this shokupan recipe. We're using a different method, which is called the Yudain method. Okay. But the Tangzong method, I do feel is so popular that I just wanted to mention it a little bit. So Tangzong translates, I think, to water roux. And Mm -hmm. as you know, a roux is just a mixture of flour and water. And so you cook that mixture into a slurry and you add it to your bread dough. And by pre-cooking that flour, that lets the gluten stretch and develop, and then it traps more moisture in the bread. So adding that slurry, that roux into your dough Mm -hmm. increases the amount of water that the bread can absorb, which gives it a softer texture. And I also found a great article from beloved King Arthur Flour, or how to convert any of your bread recipes into a Tangzong method recipe. So I'll include a link to that as well. Okay. And they mentioned the mouthfeel and the softer texture, but they also mentioned that this allows your bread to last longer. It actually keeps your bread fresher longer. So that was appealing to me as well because sometimes that's my problem with making homemade bread is I can't get through it quickly enough. That's so interesting that you said that because just today I was reading an article and it was saying the biggest difference between store-bought and homemade bread is that a store-bought bread will go moldy before it goes dry, but a homemade bread will go dry before it goes moldy. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So yes, you can often not finish it before it's really dried out. This bread, Andrea, is so fascinating to me. First of all, it is gorgeous. The pictures that people post, the they keep calling out this this fascinating texture. And then, of course, then the method is so unique. So you just explained the method we're not using. But what is this method that we are called the Udain method? So the Udain method is similar to the Tangzong. Here's the big differences as far as I can tell. With the Udain method, you use boiling water, whereas with the Tangzong method, you do a mixture of cold water and flour and then heat it up. Okay. Um, and then with the Udain method, you've got basically a one-to-one ratio between flour and water. With the Tangzong method, you've got a one-to-five res- ratio. So okay. one flour to five water. So very different. Why I picked this particular recipe 
the shokupan. First of all, everything that I read said shokupan is just kind of the ubiquitous Japanese milk bread. It's kind of the most common. It's what everyone eats. Okay. And I liked this particular recipe with the Udain method because it had the weights. So I know that is helpful for you. And I know. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially when it comes for you and me baking something new and something as technical as bread. I think weights are really important. Yes. And I think that we're just so much more inclined to use recipes that have both the weights and the measures. They are consistently better. I agree. So in this particular recipe, you're going to make your yudain the night before you bake your bread. And I love two-day recipes. I always have. <laughs> and especially now that I've got extra time on my hands, it's so much fun to have a project in the kitchen and something to look forward to. The ingredients are 50 grams of bread flour, or she calls it baker's flour. That's mm. a term I'm not used to, but... She also mentions in the notes that if you don't have bread flour, you can replace it with all-purpose flour, but some fluffiness will be lost. And okay. Stefan, I do not want to lose any fluffiness. I, not if I can help it. That's <laughs> no. what I always say. <laughs> and then 40 mils of boiling water above 90 degrees Celsius, and that translates into 194 degrees Fahrenheit. So you're going to place that bread flour in a bowl Add the boiling water, mix it very well, put some cling film on it, and refrigerate it overnight. So that's pretty easy, step one. Step two here calls specifically for a bread machine or a kneader. And I am once again missing my bread machine that I have back home in Seattle and couldn't bring because of voltage issues. And by kneader, <laughs> Andrea, I am thinking she means a dough hook on a KitchenAid. That is what I am calling a kneader, and I am okay. going to call it a kneader from now on because I, love I think it. that's I me too. such a fun term. Yeah, and again, if you don't have a KitchenAid with a dough hook or you don't have a bread machine, she does say you don't have to use it, but it helps with your kneading. Mm -hmm. But of course, you can do it by hand if you need to. So I love step three because then you take that Udane, and at this point, it has become something that you can tear into small pieces, yes. and then you knead it all together for about 10 minutes. Uh, add your butter another 10 minutes and then you're doing your your rising you know about an hour and a half in a warm place punching down rolling them Andrea here comes I'm just I'm sorry to sound like in awe of this recipe but I'm just <laughs> I know it's so interesting the different things we're going to be doing I know. Rolling out bread dough with a rolling pin is not something that right? I have done. Um, and then, you know, rolling it, folding it, tucking it into yes, yes. this loaf bread tin. One thing I've been wondering about from the pictures, I feel like these loaf tins are mm -hmm. higher on the sides. And especially from the pictures of the bread that I've seen. What do you think? Are you going to use your regular loaf pan? Well, I mean, that's what I have. And I agree, though, when perusing the King Arthur flour catalog or online, they do sell those very specific loaf pans that are very, very, for lack of a better word, they're just very straight up and down. And yes. mine are straight, but they have more of a curve out, I would, and it's not yeah. even obvious, really. But no, the ones I'm thinking of are just absolutely rectangular. I agree. And I don't have that. Do you desperately want one? <laughs> desperately want one? I do. Treat yourself. 
I don't know. I, I feel like if this is the only thing I can use it for, I don't think it makes sense. Okay. How about this? Listeners, weigh in. If you have one of these bread pans that Stefan and I are talking about, these straight up and down bread pans, for lack of a better term, tell me how often you use it and what else you use it for. And maybe I will go ahead and invest in one. Okay, well, you're sure to get a lot of really <laughs> nice feedback. So then, yeah, you've kind of done all of these these nice steps, and you've folded it, and you've rotated it, and then you're putting it in your tin and preheating your oven, letting it rise a second time, and then baking for 25 to 30 minutes, letting it cool down, and there you have it. I mean, eight slices in this loaf. I, I can't wait. I am I – am, so excited and intrigued and I am too yes (laughs) I know I feel giddy I know and there's a lot of steps here but there's not a lot of wordiness it kind of reminds me of our mini segment last week when we were talking about community cookbooks and how Mm -hmm. they used to just have very basic instructions because they assume people knew how to do things so she has what 15 instructions here but each one is no more than a sentence And there is some things that I'm kind of like, hmm, I wonder what she means by that. I might look and see if I can find a video on this, Uh, perhaps a shokupan video or just a milk bread video might be helpful to me. One thing that I do want to point out, you can tell in the picture, and I think it is in, oh goodness, is it step six, is that it's, you don't put the loaf into the pan as a single loaf. You're rolling it into two separate and equal parts and placing them in. Right. And the picture does a nice job of illustrating that, I think. Yes. Yeah. Well, Andrea, there has been such a resurgence in bread making these days. And this recipe really strikes me as a reason why. It's very calm. It seems very gentle. Mm -hmm. And the steps, as you said, this is not hard. You just want to follow the instructions. And sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know what, that's exactly what you want to do. Just have someone else tell you what steps to take. And at the end, you're going to have this lovely loaf of bread. I can't wait. I think it's exactly the bread I need right now. I just can't wait. I looked up the origin of the word shogupan. And in Japanese, bread is pan and shoku is eating. So basically it translates as eating bread. And perfect. it says it is the fluffiest, the most delicate, the best milk bread you'll ever have. And it does point out that it's not rich like brioche. So it's not that you can't use these methods in things like cinnamon rolls or brioche bread. But typically, Japanese milk bread is not rich like brioche. And in fact, I did find a few recipes that don't have any sugar in them, that just have the milk and the flour. This particular Mm -hmm. recipe does have the sugar but I don't think it needs to be sweet. There's there's something about it that kind of looks a little bit sweet and has that brioche feel, but I don't think it has to be that way. And it's only a tablespoon of sugar too. So it's, That's right. it's quite yeah. low. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I cannot wait. Well, remember, we will have a link to this recipe, which is from the Chopstick Chronicles, the Shokupan, this week's bake-along of Japanese milk bread. We will have a link in the show notes for this episode, episode 179, on our website, preheatedpodcast.com, as well as in our Facebook listeners group. Stefan, many of us have spent much more time indoors than usual so far this year, and my family is no exception. While I have been able to do quite a bit of reading, I also must admit I've spent a good amount of time exploring Netflix. Oh yeah, me too. And don't stop at Netflix. Let's see. (laughs) My husband and I have been perusing all of the Amazon Prime movies. 
We watched season three of Killing Eve on the BBC. And yes, a really, really excellent Duran Duran documentary also on the BBC. (laughs) (laughs) And then over on Disney TV, I got around to watching several Marvel movies, which had passed me by. My favorites so far being Captain Marvel and the two Ant-Man movies. So Andrea, what have you been watching? Stefan, I've been watching what I think is just a fascinating, specific, very niche show. Oh, well. Fortunately, I get to claim some of this obsessive watching in the name of preheated research Mm. because the name of this Japanese show is called Kantaro, the Sweet-Toothed Salary Man. Is this a show you can watch in the UK? I have not seen this yet, so maybe it's not licensed here. Uh, Well, it's about a publishing sales rep, and he attempts to wrap up his work quickly every day so that he can visit some of the best sweet shops that Tokyo has to offer. Netflix describes the show as quirky, absurd, feel-good, and goofy, and I'd say that's a pretty apt description. Oh, how funny. Is it uh, anime? No, it's a live-action show, but it is based on a popular manga serial. Okay. Each episode explores a different Japanese dessert, and although the storyline is fictional, the show is filmed on location in real Japanese sweet shops. So I'm guessing you learned about Anmitsu from watching this series. Yes. There are 12 episodes, and they either focus on a traditional Japanese dessert, such as kakagori or anmitsu, or a Japanese interpretation of a foreign dish, such as a parfait or an eclair. I decided to start with anmitsu since I'd never heard of it or eaten it, and it was episode one. Yeah, I am in completely new territory here. I don't think I've ever eaten this, so you've got to tell me more. Anmitsu is a traditional Japanese dessert that dates from the Meiji era, or the late 1800s. It's made with cubes of agar and anko. Okay, I know what agar is. It's a white translucent jelly that has little flavor or calories. In fact, we've mentioned agar on the show before when sourcing vegetarian substitutes for gelatin since it's made from seaweed. But what is anko? Anko is a crucial component of Anmitsu. It's a sweet red bean paste made from azuki beans. Azuki beans are sweet on their own, but they're often further sweetened with sugar or honey, and they're used in almost every dessert imaginable. Okay, so some cubes of agar jelly and that sweet red bean paste. Is that... Oh no, we're just getting started. (laughs) And mitzo can also include boiled peas, mochi, a variety of fruits such as peach slices, kiwis, cherries, and even green tea ice cream. Oh my gosh, is there any room left in the bowl? Enough room to pour a sweet black syrup on top called mitsu. Aha! I'm guessing that's where the name of this dessert originates then. Yes, on from the anko and mitsu from the mitsu, otherwise known as black sugar syrup. And, you know, that's another new ingredient for me. Is black sugar syrup similar to molasses? You know, I love my molasses. (laughs) Yes. Everything I looked up said it's a lot like molasses, but it's thinner and milder. Mm. It's also called kurumitsu, which translates as black honey. And like molasses, it's said to be mineral rich and have good health benefits. Andrea, this sounds like a really elaborate dessert with so many colors and flavors and textures. Yes, I will definitely post pictures. It's quite beautiful. And it looks like it does a lovely job of balancing many different flavors, textures, and colors. And yet, somehow, it's not overwhelming. I just Mm. think the Japanese do that so well. Agree. And now, is Anmitsu made at home, or is this something that you would only see in a dessert shop? 
It's considered a seasonal dessert, and people typically enjoy it in the spring and the summer. You can certainly make it at home. I found a recipe, and I'll include a link in the show notes. In the Anmitsu episode of my show, Kantaro, the sweet tooth salary man, went to a sweet shop in Ninocho, and that's been around since 1837. And he says one of the reasons he picked this particular shop is because it's called a traditional sweet shop rather than just a sweet shop. And he says you can sense the care for their craft. Oh, well, I'm sensing some serious sweet shop exploration in my future. Thanks so much for sharing your latest Netflix obsession with us. I'm going to have to check it out as soon as it gets here. It sounds a lot more highfalutin than my Marvel movies. (laughs) (laughs) I also want to Shout out and thank Nami, a Japanese home cook and author of the food blog Just One Cookbook. She has such a wealth of information on Japanese sweets and ingredients used in preparing them. Listeners, if you've ever had Anmitsu, we'd love to hear about your experience. Send us an email at host at preheatedpodcast.com or drop a post into our Facebook listeners group. Well, the timer's buzzed and we've got to get the sprinkles on top of this episode. We release new shows every Monday morning, and next week we'll see if the fervor around Japanese milk bread is justified when we review our shokupan. Then we'll introduce a copycat version of a famous Japanese chocolate truffle and take a look at the super popular and kid-approved Japanese rice cake called mochi. Thanks as always to Anne-Marie Russell for supplying our theme music. You can find Anne-Marie on Amazon and iTunes or at annemarierussell.com. Listeners, if you'd like to get an email and a link to the full show notes every week when our episode is released, subscribe to our newsletter by visiting our website, preheatedpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we're at Preheated Pod. If you like our show, please rate, review, and recommend us on your favorite platforms. Our thoughts are with you and your families and loved ones. We hope our show has provided a bit of respite when you've needed it most. Until next time, I'm Stefan Cohn in London. And I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. Thanks for listening. Be well and sweet dreams. Preheated is written, hosted, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stefan Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions. Very specific and a niche. Niche? Niche. Niche? Niche.